Hello, beautiful people. Today's episode features Jake Gronsky, and Jake is a former minor league baseball player who has now become an author. And that story fascinated me so much that I I had to reach out to Jake and ask him about everything that he's done. So in this conversation, we spoke about writing, we spoke about his book, we spoke about social media and how Jake has kind of an interesting view on social media. So overall, it was a really fun conversation and I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to Jake. If you have any feedback for this conversation, the best place to do that is at Hey Danny Miranda on Twitter, and I look forward to hearing from you. But without further ado, this is my conversation with Jake Gronsky. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. My first question is, in doing research for this conversation, I found out that you never went to a bar in all of your college experience. (laughs) Tell me how that happened. Okay, so... There's, there's a couple reasons for it, and, and I will, it all comes back to uh, this guy named Ron. So I just want to be clear. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't perfect. I don't want that to come off as me making it seem like I've, I've never uh, – that I think I'm better than someone that went to a bar or whatnot. That's not the case. Uh, ultimately, I really looked up to a few baseball players in my career, and a few of them – uh, I was lucky enough to be able to work with them, become teammates with them, and, and really learn from them. One of them was a guy named Ron, and he was this this awesome Italian dude from North Scranton, and he went to a small Division II school, and he was a guy that really should not have had a chance, right? He he wasn't the he wasn't the biggest guy. He didn't throw the hardest. He didn't have the best stuff. He was a pitcher, got drafted late, and he really made something of his career and really made a career out of baseball. And I really respected the way he did it and what he did. And one of the things that he told me when I was in middle school was that in the four years of his college, he never went to a bar and he only went fishing on the weekends. And it was in passing, so it wasn't really a a you know a, a big aha moment. But when I got to college, you know, I went to a, a pretty big party school. It was a very small school, but it was known for partying. It was known for that type of atmosphere. And I, I kept remembering what he said, like never being to a bar. And I don't think it's about drinking alcohol, right? So I don't think the moral of the story was not to drink alcohol. I think the moral of what he was saying was that he never let anything sidetrack him, right? So going fishing was what he looked forward to because that was a good distraction, and it was the first time that I realized that there are good distractions, there are bad distractions. Fishing was a good one. You know, going to a bar and spending money that I didn't have with the, my parents' income that I didn't earn, uh, you know, a night before a game that I need to play is not a good distraction. So, you know, it sounds like I was just sitting in my dorm room, like huddled, twiddling my thumbs, which really isn't the case. But it was the introduction of what is a good distraction 
And I think I was trying to figure that out. And ultimately, um, you know, I, I really didn't go to bars. I never drank in the season. I never went out to, to parties during the season or during training and, and nothing got in the way of what I was there to do. And it was baseball. What did you find the distraction to be in terms of good distractions? I'm so glad you brought that up because it caveat, it dovetails perfectly into our conversation. What I found was reading and writing. So that was the introduction to me of really what I didn't know was the next phase of, of my life was writing. And I started that in college where I finished most of my college work. I couldn't graduate early, but that's when I really got heavily into reading and reading everything from, you know, it really started with business to, you know, self-help. You go through these phases, I think, of reading where every college student goes through their Malcolm Gladwell phase and then they move on to, uh, you know, the the social uh, injustices. Then you move on to psych- psychology and then you move on to business uh, and then you go on to trying to apply that. So I kind of went through that phase of reading and that was my introduction to becoming a writer. And those were the distractions that honestly uh, – allowed me to look forward to something other than baseball. And that was extremely important as an athlete, but also as a person. That makes a lot of sense. And did you always, were you always interested in, in writing and reading from an early age or was it a passion that you found just in college? Definitely later in life. I I can Full disclosure, say I was not a kid that looked forward to the next Harry Potter book. I didn't read a whole lot. I mean, I I read for school. Um, I could also, we could go on for hours about this. So I'll clean it up by saying, I think the way reading is taught in school, especially public schools that I went to, is, is demeaning to becoming a reader. I think in order to become a reader, you have to uh, get over that rather than that being a catalyst. So I found reading later in my academic and and really just studying life, and it was mostly my my junior and senior year of college when when I would start burning through books, and it never really ended. So it really started there, I think specifically uh, when I was a junior when I realized that only thinking about baseball started to derail baseball, and that's when the journey beyond the diamond happened going back to the school and i've found this with so many different writers they've said that reading has hurt them in in school when they when they're forced to read in school it, it hurts and and i'm curious if you've thought about any ideas for what school could do better yeah to oh, I, make I, us I readers yeah, absolutely. I got a solution for it. Because here's the thing. I, I hate bringing up problems without solutions, right? Like anyone can point out a problem. Anyone say this is bad, right? That that doesn't take mm-hmm. any special talent to say something is bad or good. You got to, if you're going to bring up a problem, you got to have a solution for me, even if it doesn't work, but you need a solution for me. So one of the challenges that I think we all went through is we start off with books and and literature, like actual literature that even myself now would have trouble deciphering. We start off with Shakespeare. We start off with the Odyssey, right? We start off with these crazy books that, yeah, they are great. They're really cultured, awesome. That also tells every kid reading that you're going to have to, one, dredge through the book, 
Two, you're going to have to take a test at the end. And three, you're going to have to find the answers to those tests to move on. So what I would do, right, and again, I don't know why I'm not getting calls to solve this problem yet. Um, I'm just kidding. What I would do is start off actually not reading books. Sounds counterintuitive, but the reason being we should start off with something that you got to get a kid, particularly a new reader, used to reading a beginning, right, and then getting to the climax and then reading a resolution. We need to get them in the process of understanding and comprehending story, the entire cycle. It's not reading amount of pages, right? Some of the greatest stories ever written are short stories. You know, Ernest Hemingway wrote the greatest story you could argue ever in six words. So you, you know, you look at these things as a story rather than a word count, and I think you can get somewhere better. So I would start off with, you don't read books to start. You read articles, you read, you know, smaller magazine articles, something to get used to a hook, a climax, resolution, get them into the process of story and then grow it from there. Then let's go on to short stories, right? Then get them used to, hey, let's read a two page story, something that is, you know, really, really comprehensible, something that is not intimidating and something they can look forward to. And then from that, then you would move into more of the commercial writing. And, I, you know, people before you sharpen your pitchforks, the reason being is not to not read Shakespeare. I don't think that that's not what I'm trying to say. You need to read something to get people into the process of story. And then when you bring them Shakespeare, now they will be able to handle it rather than thinking this is a test. And so if we can build that rather than, oh, this language is much higher than where they need to be. If we can build story rather than building a page count, we can then get people into reading Shakespeare. We can get them reading Hemingway. We can get them reading Jane Austen. We can get them reading, you know, into really, really good books once they're ready. It's it's like, you know, if if you're just starting working out, like it, we have this weird system where we want people to to start running. Right. We are just starting working out and you want to run. So the first thing we do in school is we have them run a marathon and then say, well, this is running. It's like, no, that's that's not how any of this works. So I would take a step back, maybe not even inter introduce books until people get to high school. And I know I will be strung up by my heels for that. But I really think if we can understand story better, then we can understand reading better. I like that. I've never heard that approach before, but I think that that's a good one. And that's kind of breaking things down to first principles. And I, I really like that type of thinking. So going now and switching to you as a writer, in doing research for this conversation, I found out that you wake up at 4.30 in the morning to write every day. I don't know if this is still true, but if it talk to me about your process. Yeah. So – I will be f fully honest here. I currently don't do that, and here's why. Uh, I did wake up at 4.30. I did do that because I'm naturally a morning person, so that's not that crazy to me. My dad, my entire life, woke up at 3.45 to get to work by 4, so it's really not uh, a big deal. Mm -hmm. However, um, when I was doing that, it was mostly out of necessity because of my day job, what I was doing, what I was doing afterwards. That was a time where... I needed a sliver of life, about a two-hour window, that was uninterrupted. And that was the time that it was. 
now I have a much freer moment, particularly in quarantine where I don't need to have a commute. I don't need to do a lot of things that from the hours of 645 into around nine o'clock is also an uninterrupted window. So I started using that because my work, what I started finding, if it was more data-driven, which at the time I was I was really going through a lot of editing, a lot of, and by data, I mean uh, more wordsmithing in the realm of writing. The 4.30 hour was perfect for that because I was, I was transcribing a lot of things. Um, I could really get into a flow that way. But when it was a more creative journey, which I'm working on now, the 4.30 hour wasn't my best work. And the one thing I want to note, I think we we heroize going early too much, right? So I don't care what time somebody wakes up at. What matters is your best work. And to me, I wasn't having my best work at 4.30, so I changed my schedule. And it doesn't sound as sexy anymore, you know, working from a normal hour of like 6.45 on, but that's when work started getting better. I started realizing I was rewriting most of the work that I was doing. If it, if it was creative at 4.30, I was rewriting it again at 7. And that's when I had a change. So um, I do still wake up early to, to do other things. Right? I mean, that's where I could, I could work out. Right? I could get that done. Because, um, again, I'm naturally a morning person. But mostly now my writing is uh, a little bit later. But I do try to keep it because I'm a morning person. I do try to keep it one of the first things that I do every day. So what does your process look like? Are you searching for a specific number of words? Are you, when, when you just sit down for the pages mm-hmm. at, at 645, talk to me through your, your actual yeah. process. Yeah, this is a great conversation because if you're a writer, you're going to go through different phases of your process. And I think we need to be more flexible with it. We need to give ourselves the ability to change, right? Um, it's very, again, very similar. Go back to the workout thing. You're not going to have the same workout routine as you did as an eighth grader, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, now I've been writing full time, you know, for about six, roughly six years of every day working on it. And it's changed over time. Right now, the thing that really has been helping me is when I sit down to write, I need to allow myself, I need to give myself the ability to not write anything. This, again, it's going to sound counterintuitive, but hear me out. I need to allow myself to fail. And in writing, we think of failure as uh, this this idea of writer's block, which actually is not a real thing, by the way. There's no such thing as writer's block. Um, but we think of not getting to a certain word count. We think of not getting to a certain chapter as being a failure. You need to allow yourself to fail because you need to be able to take risks. So the first thing I do, I do is I make sure that I'm ready, that I'm prepared to when I say that it's no longer writing time, when it's time to transition to something else, that I don't have the work that I wanted to show for it. So with that in mind, that allows me now to say create. And when you sit down, the only rules that I have is that I cannot do anything else. So I could legitimately this, – this hasn't happened. So this is a extreme case, but it has not happened yet. If I sit in front of my com- computer and I don't write a thing, that's okay 
because I need to give my brain, my body, my, my soul, so to speak, time to create, to understand what it's trying to say. And if I sit there for two hours in a blank screen and I have nothing, that's okay if I don't do anything else. So that means I'm just sitting there, not checking my email. My phone is not in my room. I don't have anything else, no TV, no sound. I'm not talking. I'm not doing a thing. If I sit there for two hours and I don't write anything, that is fine. Because just like good wine, it takes time to decant, right? We may not have everything right now, but your mind needs time to develop what you're trying to say, and then you can go ahead and write it. So that's what I think about. And honestly, it takes a lot of pressure off. And so most reasonably, um, I do get through a good amount of writing, I think because I was able to build up the stamina of doing this every day. So my mind is ready, right? I'm prepared for it. Um, but the only rules that I have is that I sit down and I cannot do anything else. And that's it. It almost seems like a form of meditation for you where you're just sitting there and letting the thoughts come to you and, and not forcing anything. And I, I think that's really important. Absolutely. There is a part of that. I, I think uh, that might be – that is actually how I got into writing, right? 100, 100% of everything that I've written up until about three years ago was for myself. Never seen – and it really shouldn't be seen because it's not for anyone else. The audience was me and it was a form of meditation. Now, you know, I'm fortunate enough where about 10% of everything that I write can go to publication. Other than that, it's still for myself. But I will say that is the creation period. And maybe, you know, maybe if we back up a step, I think before getting to the moment where I give myself the ability to look at a blank screen, because again, 90% of, excuse me, like half of writing is looking at a blank screen, trying to make magic, um, you know, before that, before I even get to that point of saying, okay, I'm ready to do this, there's a whole research phase that goes into it. There's a whole structure of how stories are told. We blueprint the entire story. And then that's when I can go ahead and sit down. So the daily process is very much meditation for me. The process to get there is very much labor and there's no getting around that. So, uh, that I think is also a, a part of writing that some authors n not avoid, but they could skip because the make magic part is way, way more romantic than than plotting your your book out or your your story out and then starting over and then blueprinting it again and then going ahead and doing that four times before you even get to a computer. So it's kind of a, I think a two pronged approach. There is the daily writing, which I'm in now. And in order to get that, you need to go through the manual labor of making sure your story is right. You mentioned that some of your work is, is published obviously. And the, the story that I would love for you to talk to listeners about is your book, a short season on Josiah Vieira and and just this story when you explained it and I, I researched it 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 just hit me in such a way and I would love for you to impart this story onto the listeners sure. of this podcast as well. Yeah, so I, I'm really glad that that story hit you because that was uh, 
that was extremely close to to my heart, not as a book, but Josiah as a human being, his grandfather as a person, and ultimately the transformation in my life could be traced back to not just his story, but that, that whole process of writing his story. So I'll, I'll leave it at this. Josiah Vieira, he was diagnosed with Hutchins-Gilford progeria syndrome when he was about two years old, which is a form of rapid aging, and it's a terminal disease in children. And it's it's horrendous. I, I really don't want to go into, into that. I would say um, you know, there's a lot on it. Uh, you know, w- looking at Josiah, you, you can see uh, his body aging about 10 years for every one year he was alive. And unfortunately, he passed away on Christmas Eve in 2018. And Josiah was a honorary coach at the State College Spikes. And that is the single A affiliate of the Cardinals. And at the time, I was playing in the Midwest League for the Cardinals, which was the uh, the full season A affiliate. Uh, I got hurt in the middle of, excuse me, at the very end of the season. It was uh, one of the hardest times that I was going through because it was, I finally figured out the minor leagues in a way and I had the hottest month of my life and I got hit with a fastball and it broke my hand. And I'm from the central Pennsylvania region. And so they sent me to state college for three days in order uh, to meet with a doctor in case I need to have surgery in my hand. And this a little boy walks into the clubhouse and everyone stops. It was like, it, it was honestly like a hall of famer just walked in, uh, to a, a crowd of press and it was every player going over to Josiah and, and Dave. And he had such an impact on everyone because of the way he lived and the way in which he lived with this disease. And so we became friends. And after that season, Dave, his grandfather, uh, we met at a coffee shop and we would talk about life. Pretty much he would talk about life and I would listen. And it was like church. It was the best thing. And it was the most important thing I needed to hear. You know, I was a 20 some year old kid with a cast on going through one of the hardest moments of my life and, you know, unbeknownst to me about to be released from the Cardinals about to be cut. And Dave is just pouring into me. And I remember when he finished telling me his story, God, I'll literally never forget, uh, forget what he said. He said, I don't want Josiah to be forgotten. And I, you know, I looked at him, I was like, Dave, you're crazy of, of how many people he has inspired and how many people he has touched. And, uh, you know, everyone at the spikes and the Cardinals, there's no way Josiah could be forgotten. And he said, you're right, but history is not told it's written. And I got, I'm getting chills just, just thinking about it. And and I remember him saying that, and I said, you know, if there's anything I can do to help you with that, you know, my, my life, my calendar is open. And we decided there that we were going to write the story that he told me in the coffee shop. And all we wanted to do was print out two copies, one for him, one for me. And, and and again, we had no intentions of this going anywhere. Cause again, I, I wrote for myself. I was a trained writer, uh, you know, by, by trade from college, but there's a difference between amateur writing and, and professional writing. And, and so right there, we decided we were just going to print out two copies and do it. And we started working on it. And, you know, as things unfold again, I, I, I think it was a God thing. I, I, I have, 
no idea how it all came together, uh, but Josiah, he already had uh, a story done by ESPN E60. Producer found out about us writing the book. He helped us. We got in contact then with a literary agent who wanted to take on the project. It ended up selling to a publishing company. The whole thing came together. They put a rush on it. It came out uh, within eight months of us getting started in the publishing process. That is unheard of, of being done that quickly. Uh, and it came out. We were, it, it, ESPN even picked it up. And, you know, the, the book came out in, in October and Josiah passed away that December. And I still think to, to that day of how everything came together, he was able to see the book come to life. He was able to experience all the ups and downs with that, with us. And the story was able to then be written. Uh, to me, you know, it didn't matter how well the book did or, or, or what happened afterwards with it. You know, that was one of the, the greatest achievements of my life was just being able to articulate that story. And still to this day, it's it's one of the crowning uh, moments of my life was was meeting Josiah Vieira. You mentioned that there was only supposed to be two copies. Was it difficult for you to put your your heart and you on the line when you were publishing that story? Because that was a part of you and a, and a special relationship you had with the family, it seems like. So was that difficult, that decision? So for me, it was not because the book actually is not about me, right? I, mm -hmm. I am just a co-author in it. Uh, for Dave, I give him so much credit for being uh, so open, so honest, and so brave to actually do that. I know that that sometimes sounds like a cliche, somebody brave, but you know, writing a story about your life, God, you are opening doors to a lot of topics, a lot of moments, a lot of years that you perhaps have closed that door and moved on and forgive and have moved forward. You are now reopening that door for everyone. And, you know, him, for him to be able to do that, for him to say this story is important enough to do that. You know, when we talk today, I, till, still to this day, I thank him for doing that because of how many people it's actually impacted. So to me, my goal, I think, you know, if you read the book today, there's a lot of cringeworthy sentences. There's a lot of cringeworthy storytelling. You know, I wrote that when I was 24. It was published when I was 26. I was learning how to be a professional writer, you know, just being thrown into the fire of it. So still to this day, there's a lot of cringeworthy stuff for me. If I could rewrite it, I would. Uh, but the only thing that I think we got right, and I would argue the only thing that I got right was one, staying out of the way of it. You know, I, the last thing that a writer could do for that story is to insert themselves into it because it does not need anything else. And two, we told the right story. Everyone wanted to tell the story about Josiah's disease and everyone wanted to tell the story about this kid overcoming something so terrible. But no one told the story about the grandfather, the family, right? The, the destruction that they went through before Josiah got into their life, the forgiveness that they had to find while Josiah was aging rapidly and the prospect that Josiah – was is only given a few years on this earth. Nobody told that story and and we did. And that I think 
is where, you know, I give Dave so much credit because it's very, it, it's easier to talk about a disease rather than talking about how your family was able to forgive and to move on during that disease. So I think for Dave, you know, he's one of the strongest men I've ever been around, which is why it's, you know, his relationship is so important to me and learning from him. For me though, it was just, how can I find ways of not inserting myself into the story? And, mm-hmm. and that was, uh, a challenge, but it, it was it was a good learning experience for me. You mentioned that some parts of it make you cringe. What in particular, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, I made every every mistake you can make as a writer, and I did it publicly. So part of me is is extremely grateful. Well, excuse me, I am extremely grateful for doing that book, and you know, I rewrote it four times. You know, I did, uh, but you know, there's the amount of adverbs being used, the amount of, uh, just like fat that's still on the meat, so to speak, that could have been trimmed up. It could have been quicker. It could have been much better. Um, all of that where it's just like, Oh, you'll read some parts and you know, they might be a little overworked. It's kind of like a, you're a new chef. Right. And so some of the meat is going to be a little bit overcooked, you know, uh, again, the, the only thing that I am still extremely grateful for is that, yeah, the wordsmithing needed work and it still does. Like I'm very open about it. You know, I, I wrote that the best that I could and, and it was good enough, right? It, it got it over the finish line. It got it published, right? It, it, it got an, an agent that said yes. And it got a publisher that said yes. And it went out to the public. Um, you know, it, it was minimum viable, so to speak, but the story was right. And that's where I think a lot of people go wrong, where we want these perfectly structured sentences. Yeah. Before publication, you'd want those perfectly structured sentences. We want these beautiful, robust descriptions and all these different aspects, but really what matters and the reason why people were okay with my amateur wordsmithing was because the story was right. And there's a big difference there. So the only thing, uh, that I'm, I'm still, that I think that I would not rewrite any part of it is the story structure, uh, and how the story was told in, in the way that it was told. But yeah, the dude, the wordsmithing, uh, you know, some of the mistakes I was making are, are laughable and they could be used in writing one-on-one of what you shouldn't do, but, uh, that's okay. I've honestly never heard a writer talk about their own writing like that. And I think that it shows a level of humility uh, (laughs) that I'm honestly grateful that you bring to the table here because I've just, you know, people, people don't talk so harshly about their, their previous work. Yeah. I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing, (laughs) uh, but I I appreciate you saying that. Um, Yeah. I, I would say we should be harsh on our work. We should be harsh on the evaluation, not on the writing process. I think we as writers mix that up as well. We want everything to be perfect the first take. And that's not, that's just not going to happen. Put it this way. If you think your writing is good after the first take, you are nowhere near where you need to be. And, you know, and I went through that. I I think maybe the reason why I'm so harsh about it is part of me is a bit jealous of writers that come on to 
that, that come into their, their, you know, their niche or their industry, uh, later in life because they have so much more to pull from. They have, uh, you know, if you're older, I hope you've been working on the craft for 30 years. And so when people become authors at age 50 or 60, to me, that makes sense. Like, yeah, well, that does make sense because that's when you're finally going to be developing the right way. You know, I'm kind of jealous of that since I've been fortunate enough to come in to writing in a small way uh, in, in my own corner of publishing in my 20s. I can guarantee you that my writing is gonna, is better now than it was then. It's going to be better when I'm 50 than it is now. So, you know, we do need to be harsh because without that, you will never grow. Yeah, I like the idea of if you're not looking at yourself three years ago and cringing, then you're you're not growing, right? And so you doing that with your own writing shows that you've grown as a writer, and it's almost a positive because it, it shows growth in that respect. I do Kinda, appreciate that. I hope I hope so, and I and I hope it's just not uh not too much because then you know we start paralyzing ourselves a little bit. But no, I appreciate that. Yeah. So switching gears slightly. When I, when I first told you about coming on this podcast and you graciously accepted my invitation, you then checked out some podcasts and you, you had some ideas about social media and community building that you yeah. disagreed with one of the previous guests about. And I would love for you to talk about your, your opinions and your ideas about these two topics, because I think that I would, would love be, to. yeah, super valuable. So I'm before I even jump in, I am going to give a disclaimer. I I am very cynical towards social media and I am very much aware that it is to my detriment. Right? I think being curious is the best thing you can be. I think being uh questioning in a way is a very good thing. Being cynical is not a good thing because then you start you almost start embodying it's like oh, if there's one issue now you think it's the entire it's the entire body of work that's wrong or something. So I do have a little bit of cynicism towards social media because I think it is the the newest cigarette that we have created. It is all it is meant to do is to addict you onto one thing. It is supposed to drain most of all of your attention that you're doing onto one aspect of your life and it is not meant to give you anything in return. I think we have been fortunate enough to be able to use social media in a positive way. There has been some of that. I am too cynical of seeing the negative side of social media of, of you know, just look at the – I know it's correlation, but look at the correlation between people being more depressed, people being you know worse off, people being less productive, and the rates of people being on social media. I'm, However – I understand that just being off social media does not fix any of that. So that is my disclaimer that I am a little bit cynical, but I am also a marketer. And one thing that I think if we clear up that it will make social media a little bit easier to understand and probably for me as well is that there is a difference between audience and market fit. Okay, so we're going to get really nerdy with marketing, if you're okay with that. If Let's not, do it. If, if not, yeah, please just skip along. It's fine. Right. I, and in my life, I am also a marketer. 
I, I very much enjoy that aspect. I think as a writer, you have to be. So Seth Godin talks a lot about this. I'm not even going to try to say it elegantly as he does, but there is no longer this mass media, right? It is all curbed towards a certain story. There's all curved of these micro markets. And I think social media does a great job of accelerating a lot of these, right? But we look at our own social, right? Especially as, as, as somebody, if you're, if you're doing a podcast, if you're an author, whatever it is, you're a small business, we look at building this audience as the end all be all. And then when you have something, you post it to your audience and then they just eat it up, right? We, we look at it as this arena where, man, we're building this 30,000 seat arena when ultimately I think that leads us down the wrong path. Social media is a subway where people are just going in and out and there's this cascade of information. There's all these different tweets, all these different posts, all these different photos, all just zooming past us. And for some reason, everyone just has a saxophone and puts out their hat, right? Trying to monetize every person that walks by them. That is an easy way to have a million followers and sell 10 t-shirts, right? But hear me out on this. Audience building is extremely important once you have market fit, and what I mean by market fit is what are you are now becoming the product, you are becoming the resource, you're becoming the educator, you're becoming the writer that satisfies the needs of your consumers, right? You are now humbled, right, of saying, okay, I am here to serve them with what I do best, right? What are their biggest problems? And by problems, I don't mean trying to solve the world. It might be a problem of, hey, I want to read something awesome, right? You Then you becoming the resource to satisfy that need. If we have that market fit, then we build that audience around that niche, right? It's, it's joining the conversation that you want to be in. So I think an example that I use is, you know, let's look at some of the best, you know, the best social handles there are. Um, I would say use like Joe Rogan, right? Like Joe Rogan is a, obviously is a, a prolific podcaster, but if all of Joe Rogan's followers or let, Tim Ferriss, right? If all of Tim Ferriss's followers became my followers, do you think my book sales would go up? No, probably not. Yeah, correct. The answer is no. Reason being, and I know, and listen, I, I think you understand social media way better than me. So I would actually like your thoughts on, on my theory, the bookshelves would not go up. And if they did, it would just be more of a, Oh wow. just serendipitously, this person reads the same stuff that I write, blah, blah, blah. So it, it won't in the long term affect me as an author. However, if all of Tim Ferriss's followers, including Tim Ferriss, tweeted or posted or whatever they did about how much they loved my books, that would make me a New York Times bestseller because now you have people referring their smaller audience to you. So that's where if we look at, okay, instead of thinking about just getting more followers, because there's a, I'll tell you as a writer, there is a writing community that has a, a great deal of influencers and a lot of them don't have readership. Right. So readership and followers are different. We can get into that later, but they don't have market fit with the people they're trying to connect with. They're just trying to grow an audience, grow an audience, grow an audience. And they're unable to say, what am I trying to provide? Why would somebody want 
to come and have a conversation with me about it. So I think once we define that, and maybe that's where I'm struggling, but once we define that market fit and say our product, you know, again, whatever your product might be, you know, even if it's just you as an, as an engagement product, right, you engaging with other people and monetizing that way, until we have that market fit, your audience is irrelevant. So maybe my thoughts of it's not just about, hey, how can we get more followers? I would 100% rather 10 followers that would buy and tweet and post and talk to someone offline even about my books than 10,000 followers that will just scroll by. I think what you're referring to is that depth is so much better than width. It's like it's right. such an important concept because you know 10,000 people could follow you but if you're not making an impact with those people then it doesn't even matter like it it's it just about how many people are you making an impact on? How many people do you care about? How many people care about you? I think that's a, a really important point. Right. And I think we need to look at it also as what is primary and what is secondary. Okay. So if you're an author, if you're an author, most people on social media, excuse me, let me rephrase. If you are a fiction author, nonfiction author, this it's different because that you are now in the category of public figure, but fiction author, let's, let's stay there. Most people will find you on social after they have read your book because the reading community is not the same as the Twitter community. They're, they are – obviously, they're on there. But it's not that somebody is reading your tweets that is like – and again, there's always that 1% or right, somebody that has really hysterical tweets that they get a book deal and you really you – know, again, that turns into the public figure side. But most people will follow their authors after they have read their work. And that's where it's like, great. You know, hey – Let's say 5,000 people read your first fiction novel. That's incredible, right? And let's say all of them followed you on, on social, right? Now it is your duty to speak directly to that audience and not worry about trying to get that 5,000 into 20,000. What you want is those 5,000 just chomping at the bit for your next book. And that is where I really believe things can snowball. And But that's understanding that your books are primary, right? And again, I'm speaking all through – an author's perspective here. But on the flip side, I think it would help if we could define what's the end goal to someone's social media, right? Is it an engagement magnet? Are you just trying to get people to engage with you? Or is it secondary of trying to be more of a customer success type situation? I think that might help. But again, I don't have all the answers. And I do want to be upfront that I think there's people that do it so much better than me because I I am so cynical. I think I do wrap myself up where I'm not super active on social. And when I am, I actually feel guilty about it. So that I think is a challenge for me. It really is. Why do you feel guilty? Because you believe it's like the cigarette? I believe I'm just chain smoking, uh-huh. you know, and that, and, and again, this, I think it goes back to a lot of, you know, like we even said, me not going to a bar in college doesn't mean I, I, I didn't you know, have a social life, but I eliminate things from my life a lot. And sometimes I think that is an issue. So I'm going to actually ask you a question. You, I think do a very good job on social. I think it's very unique. I think it's, I think it's very uh, humble, but I think it's very consistent and transparent and, and it might give you a sliver of what it's like to work with you or, or connect with you or talk with you. And I think that's great. 
you see my end of it where I'm mediocre at best with social media. If I hired you as a, cons- a social media consultant, like, hey, I actually I was able to sign this great book deal. One of the things that's contingent with it is, you know, growing more of a presence, more of an audience that even the customer, let's say it's like, a, hey, the people that have read me, we're going to really hone in on them. And I hired you as my consultant. What would be the first thing that you would tell me or somebody that is looking to do this to increase? Increase their follower count or increase their engagement with with more people to buy their books? What What's the goal here? Yeah, I think – it would be like, again, I don't, I know nothing about social pretend. I know, yeah. I know absolutely nothing. Where would you start? Like, Hey, you have yeah. a Twitter handle and you got a, you know, a, a handful, right? I have a, you know, a, a thousand or so people that, that, and I'm, I'm fortunate for, they're pretty engaged with my stuff in general. Like, because I know most of them, um, what would you tell me to, uh, to, to start a strategy to start doing that? Yeah. So I would say, first off, it's like, like anything else, if you want to get good at it, you have to do it more. And yeah. and that means like 10 tweets a day. Like Anthony Pompliano, I don't know if you're familiar with his stuff. He started growing his social media presence in 2015 or 2016. And his goal was just 10 tweets a day. Can I, can I put out 10 tweets a day? And I think that this is true for a lot of different platforms as well. If you want to be good at something, if you want to be good at any platform, do it more often. I, I talked to one guy on Instagram. He's got like 700,000 followers. And he's like, in 2016, I just said to myself, I'm going to post three times a day. And now he, he has a huge presence there. Now he has a platform to sell his books. And I think that it's so obvious, right? Just post more. But if you're consistent with something, it creates a big impact. The other thing that I'll say is start engaging with people in DMs. Like I really I – like someone, reach, someone re- reaches out to me like I remember I was on phone calls with people, I, just random people all around the world. I'm answering their questions, doing anything I can to help them because if you are – if you are just trying to grow something, you have to engage with people, reply to every message, reply to every DM, like nothing is below you, like you do everything. And and so th- those are my two tips, post more and engage with people truly and care about people like you would if you were speaking to them face to face. So what would I post about? <laughs> so you are, you have so again, many, this, yeah. this is, this is figurative. Like, I mean, again, I, yeah. I think this is just great to talk about where yeah. you're, you're my, you're my consultant. Yeah. What would, what would I post as an author? I sit in front of a computer for most of the day writing, making magic. What, what would I, how would I engage with, with readers? So you have, let's take you, for example, you have so many stories, I'm sure from college baseball, high school baseball, you know, professional baseball that people would be dying to know what is your thought process like at bat what what changed from when you were in high school to when you played professionally what are what are the things that no one would know but would love to know you know you you have so much content and you probably know this you have so much content in you that if you just wanted to go off you could and and people would love it people would be like oh my god this guy is a professional like 
baseball player. Now he's he's writing and, and this is his journey and this is what he did. And so you'd be appealing to people who enjoy writing, people who who have interest in baseball and you would tell your story and it if you do that enough, you'll you'll get better at it. You'll see what gets engagement, you'll see what what grows your your following, you'll see what what gets likes and you'll do more of that thing, right? It's like anything else. I think that's great advice. You know, again, I'm very cynical towards social media because I, I I see more of the damage than I see of the good. But Danny, I think you're onto something, man. Uh, not promising that I will be that I will be engaging <laughs> with that and doing that, but uh, I, I think you're. I, I think that's a the positive side of social media, right? There there are good parts of it, and maybe that would be beneficial. I just don't know. I don't know if I would feel like if I'm chain smoking or not. Mm. And maybe that's, you know, maybe I'm a bit, uh, too stubborn on this, but who knows? I, I think you're right, though. I think something like that would make a lot of sense, make a lot more sense than self-promotion. Because, again, no one buys books over Twitter. Like, because you drop a link to Amazon does not mean I will be buying your book. <laughs> well, I think it's really important also to have self-awareness, right? And understand who you are and what you enjoy doing. I enjoy tweeting. I enjoy engaging with people. I enjoy talking to strangers on the internet. Yeah, I'm, I'm weird and probably in the in the 1% of people, but that's just what I enjoy doing. So if I enjoy that, then it makes sense to tweet and give my perspective and give my story. Um, and so if you don't enjoy doing that, you find a different avenue. You find, you know, like, so the question that becomes, where where do you find the book sales, right? And where do you so what is your thinking like? Okay, if I if I create something good enough, people will come to it. What is your thought process? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there's there's a there's about a three-pronged approach to this. And one, I think you hit it right on the head. It one, it depends on your genre. Uh two, I think it it does start with with you, right? So, um, I think too much we think about launching a book, not as like, you're launching a small business, right? What people don't realize about launching a book is that you are launching a small business. So we look at it. If you were starting a company and, and, or even if you were working at a, at a corporation and you guys were launching a new product and you went to your boss and they're like, okay, what do we got for our product launch? And you say, I cannot wait to tweet this out. They'd be like, cool. No, absolutely. So what are we doing to launch a product? You're like, oh, I just told you we're going to tweet about it. You would, you'd be fired, right? Your, your small business would legitimately never take off. However, that is a, a great avenue, I would argue, for nonfiction, right? So, so one, let's, let's, let's break this up into two ways of book selling. What, is, what has helped me? What has hurt me? Um, and really, uh, you know, let's, let's be clear of what I – what I could have done better and what I want to do better. Nonfiction. No one buys nonfiction for what's inside the book. What they buy nonfiction for is who is on the cover. And I know that sounds cheap. I know it sounds, you know, really degrading, but they do buy it because of you, right? If you are Seth Godin, right? Somebody that, it, you know, I use him a lot because I really do enjoy his work. You know, Seth Godin, I will buy his books because I trust him, because I look forward to what he has to offer. So whatever is behind the cover, I want to find out about. 
Right? It's one of the only products that like you don't know anything about the inside until you actually purchase the entire thing, which is crazy. Uh, mm. But you you buy from the cover, so there is that sense you need to have the right market fit and the right audience that is already following. I could tell you to get a book deal in New York uh, in a nonfiction world, you will most likely be looking at needing to show uh, some agents would need you to describe your following in the millions, which I know is ridiculous to think. Those are the very high end. But I, I know the first thing they're going to do is they're going to look at social media, and which is weird. But like we were talking about, it's important. The next thing we need to look at is who by selling your book will help them, right? And the first thing people will say are bookstores. Yeah, kind of. Uh, in the fiction world, I totally agree. We need to look at, you know, not just bookstores, but one of the best things, and this is actually what I'll, what I'll mention to any author in any genre, look at selling your book in adjacent stores, so what I mean by that is when our book launched, right, we, we, when we were in Barnes & Noble, I think in the first month they sold about three books. And that's pretty common, and to be honest with you. That's really not that big of a deal. Barnes & Noble will hold books for about a, a month and a half to two months before a turnover happens. And, you know, a couple books sold. But there was a store – and this is I, – I love thinking about this. There was a store right across the street from Barnes & Noble. And – Everything in it had a story. It wasn't a bookstore. It was, there was clothes. There was shoes. There was a few books. There was candles. But everything in it had a mission, had a story, had a purpose, right? So all of it was uh, fair traded. A lot of it was was from uh, different countries that came in. All of them had a story, and there was two shelves of books, and our book was featured on it. We chose to do our book launch at that store rather than Barnes & Noble across the street at the book launch, they they ordered 70 books uh, for, for the first launch. We sold out in two hours. And people had to then order from that book. Again, not at Barnes & Noble where the book was also stocked. Uh, they, pre, they then had to order at the store. They got a new shipment in. Those sold out in a week. They kept, they kept re-upping their orders of 20 books almost monthly. You know, I would argue it was probably every two to three months. And every single time they would keep getting their full order and they would keep selling out because a couple reasons. One, because the mission matched, right? Somebody that is buying shoes, you know, that, that are also going, you know, a Tom's type situation where they're going to buy shoes and give a pair of shoes away. When they see a book like this about Josiah, they're going to want to read it. It has perfect market fit, but it has a lot smaller audience. Then also there was no other books competing with it, right? What people forget is like bookstores are cool, but you are in competition with James Patterson. You are in competition with Jody Picoult. You are in competition with Seth Godin. Okay, so, you know, bookstores are cool. You want to look at the stores that it makes sense for your book to be part of. So if you write a, a book, I know the way I look at it, you know, look at it from a B2B perspective. If you wrote a book, about coaching basketball for high school kids, right? Let's say that's that's a niche. There are thousands of basketball tournaments, basketball organizations uh, across the country that host kids that have these massive tournaments. Every single parent is there. Every single parent buys the t-shirts and the gear. If your book was on the table next to it, it would it would sell. It 
it would because it makes sense for the clientele to be there to buy the book, right? If they're in Barnes and Noble, they're probably gonna gonna buy, you know, a a coaching book from somebody in the NBA, right? That just makes sense. So look at stores and look at places that are in your market, but have an adjacent audience, you know. And then finally, like we like we mentioned, there is that sense one of of yourself, whether that be social media, you know, as one outlet, whether that be, you know, if, if your book is, you know, in the educational space, let's say of not just finding the people that can sell it, but finding the people that will talk about it, right? Books are sold by referral and whether that's a referral from, you know, social media of somebody saying, man, you got to read this book, somebody physically giving the book, right. Or somebody, you know, selling the book saying this is, uh, you know, our, our staff's pick, right? It's curated, it's referred. So find the people that would absolutely devour your book and quite frankly, give it to them. That I, I get, I tell authors to do that all the time and they're like, uh, absolutely not. I want everyone to buy my book. I get it. Okay. I want everyone to buy my book twice, but what I would rather is somebody buy my book and then read it and be like, realizing that this was a story that they have been waiting to read and then telling somebody how important it was to their life. That is something that you're no longer selling. You're now allowing people to experience the story and then give it to the right person at the right time. So I would say those three things. And again, I I think I'm very, very much lacking, like we mentioned on the social side of things, but find the stores that make sense right? Launch there, hone in on them, help the owners, set up the stands, you know, do whatever you need to do to make them successful and, and then allow them to do their job. And then finally find the people that will just absolutely love your book and don't put any roadblocks between them, you know, and and give them the book and allow them to devour it. I think that's incredible advice. And it's almost like, you're, to your second point, which is just be a, a big fish in a small pond and, and figure out where the people are that will buy your your thing. Figure out where they hang out. And exactly. I think that's such an incredible point. Well, and let me – before you move on to that, I do want to add like a, a final aspect. It just irks me and I think we could do a, so much of a better job as writers, as authors because we need to understand that if you are an author, you're also a reader. But – if you're a reader, you're not, not every reader is, is a writer, mm-hmm. but there are going to be people. And I'm so thankful for the handful of people that I have that do this, that are so excited to support you, right? That love the work that you do. That can't wait to read the next one. They're like, there's something about your story, your writing and whatever it might be, even if it's, you know, you, you could argue, uh, podcasting is very similar, right? But in writing, especially with books, you know, you're going to have those people that are just willing to support you in any way possible. And the one thing that irks me a lot is when we have those, we then we treat them terribly. And, and that might sound blunt, but we do. And I hate it where somebody says, I love your work so much that I want to sign up for whatever email list you have. I, I am pre-ordering your book. I am going to read it and I'm going to love it because that's what I do. And the first thing that we tell them is that we want them to join this launch team that we have. And I, and I, and 
it again, it irks me. We we add them to what's known in the industry as a launch team, where these are let's say you have let's say you have two hundred people on a launch team, which is a lot. So you have two hundred people, and the first thing you do is you say you're gonna join a launch team, and you get a free early book, like oh, like sick, cool. Um, but then in order to do that, you hold them hostage and say, I need you to then review it. I need you then to post about it. I need you then to do all these things, right? In order to get the free book. You know, like what that's telling me is saying, hey, I appreciate you only for what you do for me. And that's not how you treat somebody that loves your work. What I do, and again, I was told by legitimately everyone not to do this because I, I'm a new author. I'm still an upcoming author. I don't have a huge readership. I have, you know, a, a couple hundred dynamite readers who, you know, again, that I love. But I will, when I'm launching something, you know, again, the Josiah book is a perfect example. When it comes out, they do not need to do a thing. If you want to be part of, you know, the quote unquote launch team, whatever it is, whatever that it actually entails, you don't need to do a thing. I send you a free book, no strings attached, strictly, and it's a first edition, you know, and if, if they want something signed or a note, I add that strictly because I'm so happy that they are excited. They are as excited for this book as I am. And I send it to them for free. And I... And again, I don't ask anything in return. And every single person told me, those are the people that you want reviewing your work. Those are the people you want on Amazon giving you a five-star review, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I get it. And guess what? If they love the work, which they already do, they're going to naturally do that. I want to show them that by them being part of my journey, that I respect them even more and I want to uplift them. I want to give them the opportunity of saying, hey, I will give you a book, and if you know other people who want it, I will even send a book to them as well because those are the people who matter, right? So it's not about – and again, pe people – everyone said that was wrong because you want those people to buy your book. You want those people to review your book. You want them to do things for you, which they already are. They don't need to be incentivized to do anything. They should be celebrated. So ultimately – what I want to do and what I've been doing, and from that, I'll tell you, most of our sales, again, I don't have any numbers for that, most of the sales and the engagement and the people that have read my book that I never met and probably, you know, I may not ever meet, I don't want to say most of them because, again, I don't know. A lot of them came from a referral by the people who got my book from me just by saying, I am just so happy that you are part of you know, our, our small clan and that you would tell someone to read this book. And it came from that. And that to me is worth more than anything. So I know that's a bit of a tangent, but there's something there of the fact, you know, launching a book, we need to celebrate the people that are just so interested and so invested. We need to celebrate them rather than give them chores to do. It makes no sense to me. And I'm glad that I'm, I'm trying to do something a little bit different. And I'm glad that it's working because if it didn't work, then I don't – then I think everyone would just be, you know, it would just be a stick up. And if someone loves your work, 
you're going to ask them for a million different chores before they they even get out of the gate. Doing the right thing is always the right thing. And it's something Gary Vaynerchuk says, and I think about it often. And it is it is so obvious that you are doing that by exactly what you're saying. And it's a, it's a great idea and something that I'm going to stash in, in my back pocket for the future. Thank you for no, that. that absolutely. Little and, and especially if it's a nonfiction book, like you should be looking at making all of your sales B2B. Your, your sales should not be trying to make every reader transactional. That's going to happen naturally. But you know, a perfect example, most business books become New York Times bestsellers, not because people are referring the book. It's mostly because they're all consultants. And when they speak or when they work with a company, part of the deal for them to speak is them ordering a thousand books, mm-hmm. right? So if you do, if you do, let's say you have five speaking gigs, right? And this is small, right? You do five consulting gigs and or speaking gigs. And in your contract, they have to buy a thousand books for their company or or whomever, right? If those are part of the pre-order, and this is a little insider tip, if those are part of the pre-order and you quote unquote sell 5,000 books before it's launched, that will be a USA Today bestseller because roughly, again, rough, in order to get on that per that week, you need roughly about two to 2,000 to 2,500 sales per week. Right. And the New York Times is going to be a little bit different because that's that does not go off of book sales. That goes off of what publisher you went with, it goes off of your sales, and then it goes off the editors thinking that it's worth being noted as a bestseller. But if you do that, nonfiction book, your consultants with five different companies, they all buy a thousand books, you will be a USA Today bestseller, and nobody even read your book yet. So you should make the sale B2B and then have B2C readership. Do not make that transactional. My goal as an author is that I can find a way to sell my book B2B where it's enough for me to live. It's enough for the publisher to be like, we are going to publish anything this guy writes. And my readers can get books as gifts rather than actually buying them. That's like my ultimate goal. I'm not there yet. That's where I want to be. And that would be something um, I think would be incredible. But sell it B2B and then enjoy it and and honor it B2C. Don't make B2C transactional. That's how you put up roadblocks to your readers. And that's the opposite of what you should be doing. Beautifully, beautifully said, my man. Before we wrap up this conversation, I wanted to talk to you about your pledge to readers because I thought this was such an interesting idea. Where did you come up with this idea and what, how did you, you formulate these, these 10 rules they, they seem to be for your, <laughs> your website? So I stole this, uh, of course not word for word, uh, from Mike Rowe. So in, I, I'm saying that jokingly. I, of course, didn't steal or plagiarize it. Uh, but he has what's called a sweat equity pledge. And he does a lot of work with blue-collar workers, with people that want to go into the blue-collar industries. 
And in order for them to get a scholarship by the MicroWorks Foundation, which you should definitely, everyone should look up because I think it's amazing. You know, right now we have, uh, well, I shouldn't say right now, before the pandemic, we had 6 million unfulfilled jobs, not because people weren't working, but because people were not qualified for the job and they were all blue collar jobs. So Mike Rowe's goal is to uh, bridge this gap. And I don't want to get too much in that. I think it's amazing. There's these jobs that pay 85 to $100,000 that people are just not qualified to do. It's good, hardworking Americans that really, I mean, we look down, I think, a lot of times on some of these jobs that we're talking about. And we look at them as hourly workers when a lot of this could be solved for great salaries, great lives being built. So he makes this pledge for anyone that takes a scholarship, they need to sign the pledge. And, and it really goes into uh, you know, what it means to be a worker, what it means to, to be a, a human being. And, and I love that. I think if we made those types of pledges in our own lives, uh, whether we're a blue collar worker or white collar or whatever it is that we are, um, I think we'd be a little bit better off. So to me, um, I made one for writing. You know, I, I very much love what I do. I very much love writing, uh, but I very much love the people that I'm able to work with. I'm fortunate enough to uh, to have my own niche of writing, and part of that spews over into co-authoring as well with working with athletes, working with people to tell and articulate their story correctly. And ultimately, we both make a pledge, whether it's me writing whether it's me helping someone write their story, we make this pledge to our reader because as an author, you are never above your readers. You are a reader. And, you know, if it's right on my homepage, it's the first thing that I, I think I really have. Uh, but it just comes down to who I want to be as a writer. I think a lot of this is, is not only tactical, but it's aspirational as well. Um, you know, and, and I think the, the one that I, I really do think about a lot that, and, and again, this is something that if I, like, I, I very much should have this printed out and signed for myself, but it's right on my homepage to see, but I, I think about this a lot. It's my number two if people matter. Stories matter. The way in which the story is told matters. And I will never lose sight of these truths. That is not only a thought for journalism of when I do write stories for publication of saying, okay, we are in a part of journalism and writing that not only do the facts matter more than ever, but the way that you present stories and the way that you show people to the world. I mean, that's ultimately what you're doing with writing that matters. The way you show someone's life, the way you write their life, it not only matters to them, but it matters to the person that relates to it. So, you know, this goes back not only to journalism, but with co-authoring, right? And anything that you write, I think to me that always shows that there's going to be someone that relates to the story. And if, if no one relates to it, you shouldn't write it. But there's going to be someone that relates to the story. The way they will read it is not the way that I will read it. And I need to be very aware of that. So when, when they do see those words and, and it does sink in with them, that they can think a little bit better about their life and not my own. So I think about that every time that I sit down to write, 
you know, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, that the way in which the story is told is just as important as the story itself. So all of these have that type of meaning. I would, I would love to have, you know, if, if on here I have 10 of these readers of these pledges taking this conversation full circle, I feel like maybe that's where uh, I would love to tell the story behind each one of these. And maybe that, you know, after hearing some of your advice from our free consulting session, that's probably social media is probably where these belong. Am I, am I right? Yeah, it would be great for social media. I would love to read blog posts about them. It, it could be both. Yeah, well, I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up because most people actually don't bring this up when, when, when we have conversations. And, and I do think I, I would like to, uh, even dive into if some of these need updating. But quite frankly, this is something, this is my manifesto of writing. Anything I write, whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, whether it's journalism, whether it's not, whether it's co-authoring, they need to check all 10 of these. And if not, then I did not do my job as an author, as a writer. Well said. And where can people find this pledge and where can people find more from you, Jake? Well, as I said, I'm, I'm not great with social media. However, I do respond to everything on t- the only things I really have are Twitter. I, I do not have Facebook, um, but my website is mostly where I live. Uh, but honestly, I love email more than anything else because there's no algorithm to it. There's there's nothing but me and it's going directly to my phone. So, you know, Gronsky.jake at Gmail is is an email that, uh, you know, if there's there's any way of connecting, that's the best way of connecting with me. Um, I try to follow everyone that follows me for writing on, on Twitter. Um, so those two places, jakeronski.com, Twitter, and my email, um, are the best places. Well, thank you so much for all your wisdom. And I learned a lot in this conversation. Hopefully people who listened did as well. And thank you for your time. No, thank you for having me. That was fun. Let's, let's do this again. For sure. Beautiful people. That was my conversation with Jake Gronsky. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, or if you didn't, let me know what you thought of it at Hey Danny Miranda on Twitter. I'm looking forward to your feedback, and I'm grateful from the bottom of my heart that you listened until the final seconds. I hope you have a great one. Peace.